Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to this episode of Ejo, the podcast. I'm Dapua Kande, one of the editors of Ejo Talk, the blog of the European Journal of International Law. And with me today are Professors Philippa Webb and Marco Milanovic. Marco, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Very Good. nice to see you and hear you. Excellent. And Philippa, how are you? I'm great. And it's actually really nice to be in the same room as you, Dapo, for the first time since we started this podcast. Absolutely. So it's been a while since the three of us have been together, but it's um, fantastic that at least two of us are together <laughs> in the same place. So yes, I'm not, the reject. I'm not physically there in Oxford. It'll be nice to have you with us, Marco, next time. Today on the podcast, we're going to focus our attention on some of the legal issues that have arisen from operations by states to kill people abroad. First, we will talk about a very recent judgment of the European Court of Human Rights in a case against Russia that deals with the killing of Alexander Litvinenko, a Russian dissident who was poisoned with radioactive polonium in 2006. That case raises fascinating issues about the extraterritorial application of human rights treaties to the conduct of state agents abroad, as well as issues about how the acts of individuals are to be attributed to states. These issues have arisen not only in cases before the European human rights system, but before almost all the main human rights courts and bodies but inconsistent answers have been given, at least on the extraterritorial application issue. Okay, Marco, can you first of all set out for us the facts of this case and the key issues that the European Court of Human Rights had to decide? Thank you, Dapo. So the, the case was about the killing of Alexander Litvinenko, which took place on the 1st of November 2006 in London, where two people whom he was having tea with put some radioactive polonium into that tea in a, in a London hotel. Uh, these facts were later established by a, a judge-led public inquiry in the UK. Uh, very briefly, the European court found that, first, the two people, uh, Mr. Lugaboy and Mr. Kofton, who killed Litvinenko uh, through the use of radioactive poison, were acting on behalf of the Russian Federation. In other words, that their conduct was attributable to Russia. And secondly, that Russia violated the right to life of Mr. Litvinenko, uh, that it did so in two aspects, the substantive aspect of the right to life, essentially by failing to respect his right to life, by arbitrarily killing him, and the positive aspect of the right to life, the procedural duty to investigate his killing. So that's very briefly what the European Court found. So let's start with that first issue of Russia's responsibility for the conduct of those individuals. So in this case, the court found Russia responsible on the grounds that these individuals were under the direction and control of Russia, and, and they relied explicitly on the International Law Commission's articles on, on state responsibility on Article 8. But the interpretation of that 
um, article has been controversial. So, Philippa, can you talk a little bit about how that provision has been interpreted by other international courts and tribunals and, and why it's been controversial, that issue? Yes, Tepo. So the controversy really came to a head in the Bosnia genocide case uh, before the ICJ in which it issued its judgment in 2007. Um, so whereas in its earlier case law, including Nicaragua, uh, the court had referred to Article 8, meaning effective control, in the meantime, um, in the gap between that case law and the, and the Bosnia case, the Yugoslav Tribunal had uh, said that the test was overall control, which is a lower standard, a looser standard. So then this came to a head in the Bosnia case because, of course, the applicant argued that overall control was the test and the respondent said, no, it's the, the strict standard of effective control. And the court had to address this head on. And there had been a lot of ink spilt in scholarly writing about whether this was fragmentation of international law, the divide between Nicaragua uh, at the ICJ and Tadic at the ICTY. And the International Court dealt with it by saying, look, the ICTY wasn't addressing the question of the test under Article 8 for the purposes of state responsibility. They were looking at whether an armed conflict was international or not, which is a different question. And they said that the test under Article 8 remains effective control, and they confirmed it's a very high standard. So it means that you have to have control over that specific military or paramilitary operation in the course of which, in that case, the acts in Srebrenica were committed. And even though there was evidence that Serbia had a lot of influence over um, the Republic of Srpska's army, for example, including through payments, promotions, um, even pensions, they found that there wasn't effective control over uh, the events in Srebrenica in July 1995. So that is the high standard of the sort of specific operation, specific act that the IC, ICJ established. So if the standard is that very high standard, in these kinds of operations that we're talking about, it's all going to be cloak and dagger. There are going to be all sorts of difficult questions of fact. On what basis then, Marco, did the European Court of Human Rights, on what basis was it able to come to the conclusion that these individuals met that high standard, that the control, sorry, met the high standard that Philippa has just been talking about? Well, it's very interesting because the court actually doesn't get into at all that whole question of what the standard is and whether it is attributing Litvinenko's death to Russia on the basis of instructions or direction or control and what the relationship between these two, uh, three concepts actually is and what the test of control would be or what the intensity of control required would be. The court does none of that. And essentially, it's very, it's very interesting to see how this test is being applied in a very different context from that of Nicaragua or Bosnian genocide. In Nicaragua or Bosnian genocide, the issue is essentially controlled by a state over some kind of organized non-state armed group. And you have that same type of issue arise, for example, with regard to, say, Russia's control over uh, uh, pro-Russian rebels in, in Ukraine or uh, Russia's control over pro-Russian rebels in Abkhazia or South Ossetia in Georgia. No, no, but this is completely different. This is a one small isolated incident, the killing of a single individual by two people 
who are not state organs. At the time, they are not working on, on behalf of the state. They are not in a part of the state's apparatus. As a matter of law, they do not have that organ status. And the issue is essentially, were the two of them, these two assassins, acting on Russia's behalf? Uh, and the court does something extre- extremely interesting. Uh, essentially, it says, you know, the quantum of evidence that has been collected by the UK public inquiry, which we trust very much because it was a judge-led independent inquiry, is such that there are many indicators that would point to Russia's involvement in the killing. The main one being that he was killed through the use of this highly unusual radioactive poison that could only be obtained from a state. And the likely state was probably Russia. Then there's the fact that Russia had motives to kill him. You know, whatever you might think about it, but he was a former KGB agent. You know, Russia had good reason to get rid of him. And it seemed implausible in the extreme that these two private individuals did something on their own initiative. This looked like some kind of pre-planned operation orchestrated by a security service of a state. And the court then says, taking these issues into account, we're going to reverse the burden of proof. Russia, you need to explain to us why it wasn't you who ordered essentially this killing. Why it wasn't you who controlled these people, these two assassins, into killing Litvinenko. And the court then says, you completely, Russia, failed to engage either with the fact-finding process in the UK, the judge-led public inquiry, or the fact-finding process before the Strasbourg court. You rejected repeatedly our requests for documents from the case file from the investigation in Russia. Moreover, the court says you failed. Your own internal investigation does not satisfy the requirements of an effective investigation under Article 2 of the Convention. And from that, the court draws the adverse inference that Russia killed Litvinenko. And that is remarkable. So I I cannot think of any case uh, before any international court where a court for a question of such political importance without any kind of direct evidence of the state's involvement. I mean, there is no smoking gun that links the state to the assassins. Right? But drawing on all the circumstantial evidence before it and by using liberally the, the resort to adverse inferences essentially says Russia killed this guy. And that conclusion makes sense uh, if you understand the court's starting positions, which is that Russia had to cooperate effectively with it and failed to do so. Russia had to investigate the killing but failed to do so. Do you um, think it's significant? Marco, when we we talk about, you know, the smoking gun and and the link between these two individuals and Russia, that Russia had asserted exclusive jurisdiction over both of them by um, saying that they would not extradite them? Yes. I mean, uh, not only that, I mean, they they later received quite a few benefits in Russia. Lugovoy became a member of the Duma and so on and so forth. Uh, But essentially, the court says all the information we need is exclusively in Russia's possession. Mm. Nobody else can have information that would conclusively prove either way uh, 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 the the state's involvement in the killing. And by refusing to provide us with any information, 
essentially you have only yourself to blame if we draw an adverse inference. I mean, imagine if you applied the same approach to questions like cyber attacks Mm -hmm. by by state agencies, Mm -hmm. you know. Did, for example, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg that was engaged in so much election interference, uh, uh, say, and, and, and the manipulation of public opinion in the United States, you know, is their conduct attributable to Russia? You could use this kind of, of, of inferential reasoning to, to essentially reach that conclusion. But the court justifies that by the particular context of the case, which is the positive duty to investigate in Russia's failure to, to comply, and by the fact that it refused to comply with its own requests for cooperation. Huh. Interesting. Okay, so in a sense, it sounds like the court is doing the sorts of things that human rights courts have done in cases where people are disappeared or even in cases where people are in, in state custody and the court essentially says, exactly. you you prove otherwise. Exactly. So when somebody in custody ends up with, I don't know, wounds and, 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 and bruises and the, the state says, well, he fell down the stairs, the court says, well, you have the burden of proving that that was the case, that he wasn't tortured and subjected to inhuman treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and essentially that's the same approach they did here. Okay, interesting. Let, let's move on to, to the extraterritorial application issue, right? Because Mr. Litvinenko killed in London, and then the question is whether Russia had violated his right to life. And of course, you know, the question is, did, he have, um, did Russia have obligations to respect that right to life in London? Now, this is an issue that has faced probably all the kind of major human rights um tribunals and and treaty bodies. How did the court deal with that question in this case, Marco? Well, uh, briefly put, it said that the convention did apply to the killing. Uh, The reason why that's an interesting finding and not an obvious one is because all of this background in the court's prior case law. Uh, In the court's prior, uh, prior case law, if we go 20 years back to the famous Bankovic decision, which dealt with the bombing of Belgrade by NATO troops, by NATO airplanes uh, during the 1999 uh, uh, intervention uh, against Serbia. Uh, The attribution inquiry was more or less clear. It's clear that it was a NATO airplane, an American one, maybe a British one, I don't know who's, who destroyed the TV station. But the court said, even if, you know, we accept the attribution point, simply killing somebody by dropping a bomb on them does not suffice to create a jurisdictional link. And so that was the most controversial uh, 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 decision of the court, which sort of informed all of the jurisprudence that was then to follow, cases like Halskani and so on and so forth. Marco, let me just take you back a bit. Can you just explain why this question of extraterritorial application of, of the European Convention and other human rights treaties has been an issue in the first place? Afterwards, with other international law treaties, we don't necessarily ask ourselves this question of, does the obligation of the state apply outside of its territory? Why in this context? You're right, Dapo, and and you would even think that with human rights, whose very idea, their their basic predicate is that they're universal and that we enjoy them on the basis of human dignity, uh, you you would think that this whole question of extraterritoriality would be irrelevant. But that's not how it actually is in, 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 in the jurisprudence. 
Now, the reason why that's not the case is because of the actual language of human rights treaties. Many human rights treaties, including the European Convention, including the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, have these so-called jurisdiction clauses. So, for example, Article 1 of the Convention says that everyone who is within the jurisdiction of a state shall have rights under the Convention. And everything then revolves around the interpretation of these words these words within the jurisdiction. What exactly does that mean? And human rights bodies have adopted two basic approaches to this problem. One is to say that a person is within the jurisdiction of a state if they are located in a territory under the state's effective overall control. So think, for example, Turkey controlling northern Cyprus or Russia controlling Crimea. The other approach has been to say an individual is within the jurisdiction of the state if they, they are, um, if the state agent is exercising power, authority, control over the victim. And the big problem there has been precisely what qualifies as authority, power, control of the victim. Everybody will agree, for example, that detaining the person would suffice. But what about killing them without detaining them? And in this particular case, that's what happened. You know, there was killing without detaining. What, what approach did the court take in this case? So the, the approach the court took here was a subversive riff off of the most recent judgment of the Grand Chamber on the court of this particular topic. And that's Georgia Russia number two. Uh, in Georgia Russia number two, the court essentially wanted to say that the convention should not be applied in what it called contexts of chaos the active phase of hostilities in international armed conflict. But when it was confronted by the fact that authority, power, control over the victim has to mean something beyond just detaining them, that killing a person is, in fact, you know, a, 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 an exercise of, of authority, power, control by the state over the victim, the court said in Georgia Russia number two, well, yes, but these were different cases. These were cases that were isolated incidents where there was an element of proximity between the state agent and the victim. The implication being that if an assassin in a James Bond way stealthily approaches the victim and shoots them or knifes them or poisons them, then the convention might apply. But if what the state is doing is mass artillery shelling or bombing from the air or something like that, the convention would not apply. So this is a result that's obviously wholly arbitrary. Now, in the Carter judgment, uh, dealing with the Litvinenko uh, uh, killing, the chamber essentially latched onto these paragraphs from, from Georgia Russia number two and said, well, the convention must apply to what it called proximate targeting of an individual and proximate targeting will exist if the state is controlling that a state agent is controlling the victim's life and in this particular scenario the court said the two assassins by putting radioactive poison into mr litvinenko's tea knowing what this will do to him controlled his life in a situation of quote-unquote proximate targeting 
and that meant that the convention did apply. Ah, okay. So essentially what they were doing was they were using a judgment where the court had said, Georgia Russia number two, where the court had said the convention doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. They were using that actually to establish in this case that the convention does apply. In, exactly. This issue of, you know, proximate killing, right? One of the most controversial sort of judgments in this area is the Bankovich case, which, you know, it's the the targeting during the, the conflict in Kosovo of the radio television station in, in Belgrade. So there you had bombing from the air, right? And the court said the convention mm-hmm. did not apply in that case. Can we somehow put that kind of case into this framework that the court seems to be developing of on the one hand, something is proximate, the convention applies. On the other hand, it's not proximate, it's context of chaos, the convention doesn't apply. Does it fit neatly or do we still have no neat way of thinking about it? I don't think anyone would use the word neat (laughs) to describe what the court is doing. It's not neat, it's a bit nutty. Uh, and it is the way it is because of the, essentially because of the, the, the changes in the composition of the bench and the different politics and optics of these contexts. When you have these armed conflict cases, you can understand, you can sympathize with the court, the European Court of Human Rights, who doesn't want to be the final arbiter of use of force in Afghanistan or Libya or Syria or Iraq or whatever. I mean, you get that, right? I mean, if you sat on that court, you would have the same basic impulse. How do I decide something like this? On the other hand, can you allow one European state to send assassins onto the territory of another European state and say, well, this is not a human rights problem? Right? It looks incredibly arbitrary, cowardly even to do that. But Marco, and and I know it's not a position that, that you support, I mean, what is really the difference between slipping poison into someone's tea and, you know, remotely through a drone releasing poison over a, a crowded marketplace? There is no difference. There is no difference. So making these distinctions, certainly on the basis of proximity, or the isolation of these acts is completely arbitrary. So we're gonna say that if you kill one person, if the act is isolated, that's a human rights problem. But if you kill a hundred people, that's no longer a human rights problem. I mean, we can't say that. That's just a completely arbitrary position. Or we're gonna say, well, if you kill one person by knifing them in the back and it's proximate, that's a human rights issue. But if you kill them from half the planet away through a cyber attack, you know, you hack the hospital and so they can't they, they can't operate on the person, the person dies, oh, that's no longer a human rights issue. I mean it's a completely arbitrary distinction. Okay, let's let's put the decision of the European Court in this case in a broader context and let's think about how other human rights bodies have dealt with this, right? So the UN Human Rights Committee that oversees the implementation of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, they've also, you know, had decisions or at least made statements on on this question. And the question that I'm thinking of is to what extent is the jurisprudence that's emerging from the European Court of Human Rights, this latest one, Litvinenko, to what extent is it consistent with what the UN Human Rights Committee has, has said? So can you help us with that? 
Well, it's certainly approaching the position of the Human Rights Committee. The Human Rights Committee in General Comment 36 on the right to life essentially says that the inquiry into jurisdiction should be functional. And by, by, by that, we mean that it's not really about control over the victim in any kind of physical way. It's control of the victim's rights. So if you control the victim's ability to enjoy the right to life, you as a state have jurisdiction. That's what essentially is meant by this, by this uh, uh, approach. Uh, under that approach, uh, uh, a state-sponsored assassination would be covered by the ICCPR. And in fact, if you read some of the, the language of the Carter judgment, you will see that they specifically talk about the assassin's control over Mr. Litvinenko's life. And that's very much that type of functional language. Mm -hmm. And if we take that approach that the Human Rights Committee has taken, and then we broaden it out into the armed conflict scenario, which we were talking about earlier, I mean, the implication of that then would seem to be that in all cases where you have, or would it seem to be that in all cases where you have killings by the state abroad, because the state has the ability and has in fact killed those individuals, then the state then also has human rights obligations towards those individuals. Would that not be the, the implication of the Human Rights Committee approach? Yes. Now, whether they would confess to that is a more difficult problem. So they would say, for example, oh, we put in some of this language about, you know, reasonably foreseeable effects and so on into, into, into General Comment 36 to sort of try to soften the blow a bit. But the reality of this approach, as I have sort of long argued, is that whenever we're dealing with a negative duty to refrain from something, so the negative duty to refrain from killing people arbitrarily, human rights treaties have to apply. The biggest problem with the Human Rights Committee's approach is not this negative duty. It's the positive duty of protection. So recently they had a case, for example, of whether and when, under what conditions, Libya and Italy had the positive duty to rescue migrants drowning in the Mediterranean. And you could see the Human Rights Committee was, you know, they got their knickers in a twist uh, 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 completely, right? Because they, they, you know, were torn into different directions and they were really not sure what to do. And those are the really difficult cases, you know. Does Serbia, does the UK have a duty to share its supply of vaccines or monoclonal antibodies or whatever life-saving medication with some other country? You know, that type of positive duty problem is really the most difficult one. When you come to these negative issues, don't kill people, don't detain people, don't spy on them without just a justification. You know, the inescapable sort of bottom line has to be that human rights treaties will apply. Okay, so let's see how these issues develop in, in the case law of the court. They've got a case that the European Court of Human Rights, they've got a case coming up in just a month's time dealing with the, the shooting down of MH17. And we'll see what direction the court goes. And also, I suppose we need to watch to see the extent to which it applies this jurisprudence outside of the right to life context. Let's let's move on and talk about a different aspect of these kinds of, of operations. So, you know, these sort of cloak and dagger operations sometimes go wrong. The individuals who are charged with doing the deed, sometimes they get caught and the state concerned is then 
or the state on whose territory it happens is then, you know, interested in putting these people on trial. Or occasionally you get civil cases brought against the states in in domestic courts. So let's talk about how those issues get get um, resolved. So Philippa, let let me ask you um, first of all to talk to us a little bit about the the domestic prosecution issue. Right, we've been talking about attribution, mm. talked about the fact that in Litvinenko, for example, held to be a state agent. Mm-hmm. If the UK actually wanted to put those two individuals on trial, what international law issues would arise? Well, um, this is another area where we see a state practice and um, international instruments a bit in flux. Um, the first problem is that it is very unusual for a state, in this case uh, Russia in your example, to actually admit that conduct was carried out. Uh, on its behalf. So then you do have the attribution problem, which now we have some guidance from the European Court, including on evidentiary issues that that may open that up a bit. But in practice, states are not in the habit of accepting responsibility and they don't even invoke immunity. So the the person who's caught, the assassin, um, is just prosecuted and there's just rumours about the fact that he or she was sent on behalf of state X. Um, then you have cases like Rainbow Warrior, where France asserted that its agents should not be punished but did not contend um, that they uh, were entitled to immunity. Um, So, uh, and as we know, they were prosecuted. Um, So this is like the, the first sort of attribution, factual, evidentiary issue that arises. Um, but the, the practice is really mixed, even when we get to a situation where the state does say this was done on our behalf. Um, there's a case from 2011, um, Kurtz uh, and the German federal court heard in the, the English high court where you had Sir Michael Wood and Sir Eli Lauterpacht on opposing sides. And this was um, about a European arrest warrant against uh, the Mongolian head of national security, who was alleged to have been involved in a kidnapping and an abduction. And Mongolia had sent a letter uh, from their government saying, Mr. Kurtz was a special secret service officer who fulfilled a task entrusted by the Mongolian competent authority. So quite a clear um, claim to, to him acting on their behalf. But the English court found that he did not have immunity. They looked at um, state practice, covert operations, including cases where it's been invoked and not invoked, and they couldn't identify a customary rule that would have afforded him functional immunity. So that's 2011. But then in 2016, we have the ILC looking at this issue of immunity of state officials from foreign criminal jurisdiction. And the special rapporteur at that time, Concepcion uh, Hernandez, um, having taken over from Roman Kolodkin, said, uh, pointed to Kurtzbad and said, well, we should have this territorial exception to the functional immunity of officials. And she put it in her draft, draft article seven. But as you know, uh, that led to great controversy, lots of debate in the ILC, lots of debate in the drafting committee. And in the end, it was omitted. 
from draft Article 7. And currently, and of course these articles are not uh, concluded yet, uh, draft Article 7 only provides an exception uh, to functional immunity for crimes under international law. So we have this one single instance uh, English case. We have an attempt to codify it at the ILC that fails. Um, and then this also came before the arbitral tribunal. In so just just yeah. before we move on for the back, just trying to, to to talk about one one issue that you raised, sort of almost in passing, but I want to come back to it, which is going back to the attribution question, right? Mm-hmm. So even assuming that there is immunity for this kind of conduct and there's no territorial exception, if the state doesn't say that, you know, if they're not like the Mongolians and they say this individual (laughs) was carrying out an act entrusted to us, can the individual himself or herself just say, I was carrying out an act (laughs) entrusted to me by the state and therefore I can rely on the immunity that state officials have? Well, I know that that argument would not fly in the English court, which has taken uh, quite a strict view of who can invoke immunity and who can speak on behalf of the state. It could be the head of the diplomatic mission. It can be the troika, head of state, head of government and foreign minister. But just the person um, invoking it for themselves is is not going to be uh, sufficient for the English courts. I, I can't speak to, to other foreign courts. I mean, coming back to the territoriality issue, imagine if after the 2018 Novichok attacks in Salisbury, the Russian agents who planted the neurotoxin on the door handle of Sergei Skripal's house and poisoned him and his daughter and the police officer who came to the house and so on. Imagine had they actually been apprehended at the airport. Okay. In any conceivable universe, would the British police have let them go if they said, oh, hi, we're FSB or GRU agents, we're acting on behalf of the Russian Federation? And even if the Russian ambassador or foreign minister said, these are our guys, would, again, in any conceivable universe, they had been released? So I, you know, if it was the Russian ambassador caught planting the poison, Yes, I mean, the, 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 the British police would have said, okay, tough, you know, we have to let them go, as they did with the, you know, most recently with the... With the Ansaclus. Exactly, it was with Ansaclus, the, the killing of that boy on the, in the traffic accident. But if it's just an assassin, there's just no way they would say immunity ratione materia applies, no? I suppose the difficulty is the point that um, Philip has just been talking about, which is that in principle, mm. you know, if it's an act of um, of a state agent on behalf of the state, then in principle there is immunity. The question then is, is there an exception just because they're doing it on your territory? And the problem that we have is that, you know, finding the practice mm. to establish that exception is very hard because states never say, Yes, actually, we are the ones who did it. Exactly. And therefore, we have exactly. immunity. So this immunity issue actually never gets sort of debated. The interesting thing, actually, going back to what you were saying about the Scripple incident, is that the UK actually asserted that these were officials of Russia. The UK said this was a use of force by Russia on our territory. They concluded 
that the attribution was present. Exactly. They, exactly. I mean, they were employees of the Russian state. They worked allegedly for the secret services. They were not these two private individuals uh, who killed Litvinenko, who were commissioned essentially to do it. No, 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 no. These were actually organs of the state. Organs of the state. And also the UK was asserting that they were actually also acting sort of on behalf of the state. And that makes the, the potential immunity question an interesting one because the individual might say, I'm acting on behalf of, in this case, Russia. Russia may say nothing, but the official position of the UK government is that they were, in fact, acting on behalf of Exactly. Of you know what's also a, a very interesting example of state practice here? All those nice sort of kind of useless indictments by American prosecutors mm-hmm. on cyber attacks, say by Chinese government military hackers mm-hmm. uh, uh, against the U.S. targets and so on. The you know indictments essentially specify that the the hackers worked for the Chinese military, meaning they worked on behalf of the state. Mm-hmm. Yet they are nonetheless indicted criminally. And the only possible exception that could apply here is that the effects of the crime, even though the conduct took place in China the typing on the keyboard, mm. the effect, the consequence of the crime took place in the United States. Well, that's um, a good lead into moving from the individual to the state where the effects uh, can be potentially very important in grounding jurisdiction. Um, so let's say you you can't sue uh, the Russian individuals, you can't, can't bring yourself within an exception but you could potentially sue Russia, depending on what uh, jurisdiction the forum state uh, is in. Um, and that's because, uh, for instance, the, the 10 states that have state immunity legislation, uh, nine of them, uh, the exception being Pakistan, have a territorial tort exception. And the wording may be slightly different, um, but generally it recognises that there is no state immunity if um, an act or certain conduct uh, has been committed on its territory. And some um, also require the presence of the perpetrator. Uh, the UK uh, State Immunity Act does not have that uh, presence requirement. Um, and this is leading to some interesting uh, litigation in the English courts and also linking back to what we're talking about with new tech um, and new methods of uh, spying on people. So there's a, the ca- a case that's pending brought under the territorial tort exception where it's a claim against Saudi Arabia um, for using the NSO Pegasus spyware to uh, install and, and be operated on the devices of a prominent critic of the Saudi royal family who um, is a, a resident in the UK. So this is the software that was um, sort of transmitted via WhatsApp? That's the one? Yes. Okay. So clicking on on the, the unrecognized link, or it could even be a disguised link saying you have a DHL package, click to track, and next thing you know, um, your phone is transmitting all audio and video without you even being aware. Um, so th- the claim here is brought within the territorial tort exception, or at least attempted to be, by saying that this person suffered personal injury in terms of psychiatric harm and property damage, in, including the, the damage to the way their devices function, on UK territory. Um, so, as I said, the case is still pending, um, but the key issues are 
was this injury or damage caused by an act or omission in the UK, which is the wording of, of Section 5? And can that exception in Section 5 apply to both sovereign acts, let's say if Saudi Arabia argues that it was official, um, as well as acts of a private law character? Is there any distinction? Now, similar cases have not succeeded in the US um, because the way they've phrased and interpreted their territorial tort exception is that the entire tort must occur in the US. So your example, Marco, of a person in China typing, but the actual hack occurring on on a computer um, in the United States wouldn't fall within this exception, which is maybe why they've attempted a a criminal indictment instead of a civil claim against uh, the PRC. But if we come back to the Litvinenko-type case or the targeted killing-type case, in the US, would one say that the entire tort happens there? You know, the person's killed within, let's say it was the US, would that then be a case where the entire tort is committed there, even though the planning might have taken place in another country? It would depend on the type of tort, I suppose, the, the mm. elements of it. I mean, certainly conspiracy would be a problem mm. um, if, if that was an element. Um, but uh, if it didn't have that sort of mental preparation aspect to it and it's really about you know the preparatory acts of obtaining the poison and it was all happening uh, on that territory then it would work. But it's a, it's a difficult standard uh, in, in the US. Um, and, you know, this is once again an example of a law that was drafted not imagining that we would be having cyber attacks and bioweapons and killer robots. One question about the territorial tort exception that did occur to me, didn't the International Court of Justice say something about it in the jurisdictional immunities case? Um, the Germany- yes. Yes, um, they uh, case. exactly. So it was argued as one strand of Italy's argument um, that there was an exception to any immunity Germany might enjoy because um, the the acts occurred on two Italian citizens on Italian territory. Um, but the ICJ deliberately refrained from determining this point. They said whether there is a customary international law taught exception to state immunity uh, applicable to sovereign acts in general is not something that they had to decide. So they limited it to saying if you have armed forces or other organs of a state in the course of conducting an armed conflict, that that will remain immune. So if I can summarize on these immunity issues, first of all, whether the individual will be immune from the jurisdiction you're saying, that depends on whether there's an exception for acts you do within the territory. And we don't quite know whether international law has that exception. If it's the state that you're trying to sue, whether or not there's immunity also depends on whether there's an exception for immunity for things that occur within the territory. And again, we don't, we don't quite know. <laughs> know whether there is such an exception. Okay, so in other words, your chances are probably much better at you know before an international tribunal than than before domestic courts. Unless you're in the UK. Unless you're in the UK. <laughs> as long as the yes, okay. <laughs> Okay, so this is this is not just the stuff of, of James Bond movies and sci-fi thrillers. Many operations in sort of recent months and years that deal with, you know, targeted killings by states. Um, we've got the recent drone attacks by the U.S. in Afghanistan and the recent report in the New York Times of 
the assassination of the Iranian nuclear scientist killed by an AI robot killer gun or something like that. But no time to discuss all of these issues today. There are interesting questions about whether or not these operations are covered by the law relating to the use of force, whether they're covered by IHL. For more on that, have a look at our posts on Eagle Talk. Thank you very much.